Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Um, I know, as always, we'll have folks um, making their way in as we get started. I want to open with a prayer that is actually a prayer that's assigned for Christmas Day. But um, I bring it in today here, you know, several months after Christmas, because number one, good morning, guys. It's a great uh, Trinitarian prayer. So we've been talking about the Trinity. So we're going to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work in this prayer. But it also talks a little bit about and connects with what we're going to be talking about today, the fatherhood of God. That's one of two things we're going to be focusing on. And in a way, it connects with this question here that I've put up on the screen. There's a line in the popular song, Here Comes Santa Claus, and there's a bit of a Christmas theme. This this class, when it's in the fall semester, often falls near Christmas. But there's a line in the popular song, Here Comes Santa Claus, that says, Santa knows that we're all God's children. How does this compare and contrast with a Christian understanding of the fatherhood of God? That's what we're going to be talking about today, the fatherhood of God and what it means to be a child of God. So with that introduction, um, let me pray this prayer for us, a prayer for Christmas Day. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we stepped into the second main section of the class, um, the section that talks about Christian belief. What do we believe to be true about God? And we began with our belief in God the Father. We started with the creeds as kind of our roadmap for where we're going to be headed. And I mentioned that the creeds don't really make an argument for the existence of God. They just assume the existence of God. But once you get to that place where you believe that there is a God, which as we talked about, is not a matter of proof, but more a matter of faith, trust in a person. But, but when you come to that place where you say, yes, I believe there is a God, then the natural question to ask is, well, what is that God like? And so that's what the creeds seek to answer. Given that there is a God, what do we know about that God to be true? And that, of course, led us into um, our conversation about the Holy Trinity and the nature of the Trinity. And I sent some of you all, those who were here last week, a silly little video. Hope you watched it just for a little bit of a chuckle, but also a good review for some of the things that we talked about. And with this backdrop now in place, we are ready to talk specifically about the first person of the Trinity who is creator, ruler, and father. Now, two of the things that we're going to talk about today as we press into what we know to be true about the first person of the Trinity, two, two things, two topics may well push on you all a little bit. Uh, these two topics often do. And those are the topics of what is the relationship, good morning, Chase, the relationship between science and faith. That often tends to push on people a little bit. And then secondly, what is the nature of uh, the fatherhood of God? What's the Christian understanding of the fatherhood of God? Again, that may well push on some of you all this morning. Those two topics tend to do that. And so I'm going to have a little bit of a talk, but then there's going to be time for questions at the end. 
And so I'd encourage you, if you've got a question, to, to ask it while I'm talking or, or to save it to the end. Either one would be A-OK. -okay. But let's begin with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed tells us that the first person of the Trinity is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in this one line are actually three things um, three aspects of the first person of the Trinity that we're actually going to take in reverse order, that he's Father Almighty Creator, but we're going to begin at the other end and we're going to talk first about the fact that the first person of the Trinity is the Creator. The Nicene Creed expands this a little bit and adds that he is the maker of all that is seen and unseen. Unseen being an acknowledgement that there is a, there is a spiritual reality that we can't see with our eyes, but in the same way that we can't see the wind flowing through the trees, we can certainly see the effect of it. And that there is a real spiritual realm that we can't see with our eyes, our natural eyes, but does indeed have an effect on the lives that we live. And the fact that he is the maker, of course, takes us really to that first book of the Bible. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it up um, does anybody need a Bible? I've got some up here. Yep, yeah, Joe, you here. Welcome. Anybody else? Cena, Colton, you got it? You good? You good. All right. So just uh, clear, you got one? Okay. Just open it up to uh, the first. Sarah, do you want one or are you good? You good. Okay. To uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, easy to find. First uh, book you're going to stumble upon. And there in Genesis 1, we read the text that the creed is echoing. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created, there it is, the heavens and the earth. Now, this begins, this first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible begins the account of the seven days of creation. And this First chapter of Genesis in our day and age always raises the question of the relationship between science and faith. It often brings up that question. And as I mentioned um, last week, I think that um, I, my undergraduate degree is in physics, so I have actually a great love for science and spent a great deal of time um, in a windowless basement trying to um, discover some things about the physical world. However, science, as wonderful as it is, really is only, um, can answer what I would call the little questions of life. What, how, and when? That's what science is designed to answer. Now, these are not the questions that will keep you up late at night unless you are a scientist who's writing a grant to try to get some money for something you're trying to prove. But if, if that's not you, if you're not trying to write a grant, then these are not the questions that will keep you up late at night. The mechanical questions, which science is designed to answer. As important as these questions are, there are some far more important questions that really have to do, good morning guys, with the stuff of life um, in terms of the challenges we face. And the book of, uh, of Genesis, the Bible, is really focused on answering what I would call the bigger questions, which are why, who, for what purpose, to what end. These are the big questions of life. These are the questions that will keep you up late at night when you begin to face challenges in your life. And these are the questions I would argue that God's word is most concerned about. Well, it's not an argument. It's a fact. It's a fact. 
Now, within the body of Christ, there are at least five different interpretations or understandings of the seven days of creation. Five different ways to look at it. I want to highlight just two today. There are those within the body of Christ who understand the seven days of creation to be seven literal 24-hour periods. And some of you may fall into that, into that category. You may hold that view. Others within the body of faith, and I put myself in this second category, believe that when Moses wrote the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and those first few chapters of Genesis, he was less concerned with the little questions. What, how, and when? What we would call questions of mechanism. That was, I would argue, not Moses' focus, but he was more concerned with the big questions. Who, why, for what purpose, to what end? The terms that we use for these different sets of questions are questions of mechanism, what, how, when, and questions of agency, who, why. And what I would argue is that when Moses wrote that first section of Genesis, these are the questions he had in mind to help us to understand. So that the seven days described in the book of Genesis, um, I would argue, are, are, I understand them to be metaphorical, uh, seven metaphors of, of seven great epics of time, in the same way that when David wrote in the Psalms, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Um, that God's timing is not our timing. That our chronology is not God's chronology. Those aren't the same. Now, friends, I am not interested in pressing you into either camp of how you understand the mechanism of creation. Some of you may hold to that seven-day, seven 24-hour period. Some of you may hold to the seven great epics of time. For me, as your pastor, I'm really not concerned with how you understand the mechanism of Genesis. But what I am concerned about um, are these things, and I want to talk through them. This is what I think really matters in terms of, of where I want you all to be. First, I, I want to be clear with you all that regardless of what you might hear in the news or out there in the world, um, that it is possible to have a love and respect both for, for the disciplines of science and for the discipline of theology. That those two things don't have to be um, in contrast or conflict with each other. Now, we do sometimes see them in conflict, and we could talk about why that is, but they really shouldn't be because they're, ask, they're answering a different set of questions. They're both disciplines, but disciplines that are designed to deal with different issues. Um, again, not to say that there won't be times when there wouldn't be tension between the two. There certainly could be tension between the two, but they ultimately should not be in conflict. The Bible is concerned with telling us who God is, why he has made it, why the world is the way that it is, what God has done about it, what God's purpose for us is, and what the meaning of life is all about. So my point, again, is that the debate between science and religion has been mostly unnecessary because those two disciplines answer different questions and are focused on different questions. Secondly, regardless of how you interpret the seven days of creation, what is not negotiable is what the Bible teaches us about God's relationship to the creation. As Christians, we understand that everything came to being, into being by the will of God. He spoke it and it was made, either in seven 24-hour periods or seven great epics of time. 
God the Father, the creator of all things, he created everything out of nothing. He didn't need to start with any stuff. He, he created it all just by speaking it into being. And he is intimately involved in his creation. The Bible teaches us that God made human beings, male and female, in his own image, and that everything that he has made is, is good. And regardless of the mechanism, be it in seven days or millions of years, the process is guided by the hand of God. And so as Christians, we are unyielding in our affirmation that God has been, is, and will be intimately involved in his creation. And we will reject any kind of scientific explanation that tries to say there is no God. God does not exist. God is not involved. Thirdly, as Christians, we reject the notion that human beings are merely highly evolved animals. Again, whatever mechanism God used, um, we are unique. Unlike animals, we humans are made in God's image. We're the only part of creation that's made in his image. We have a unique cluster of um, faculties that make us uniquely like God. Reason, conscience, consciousness, love, and so on. So regardless of the what of creation, what is non-negotiable is the who of creation. The first person of the Trinity is maker of all that is seen and unseen. Pause there. Questions? Questions about the relationship between science and faith. Okay, I must have done such a wonderful job that, yeah, you don't have any. Okay, well, if you have questions later on, I'd be glad to, um, to address those. And certainly, you know, if during the week, if something comes to mind, feel free to, to, to drop me a text, drop me an email, give me a call. Um, I'd be glad to meet for coffee and we can talk about some of these things um, if they come up for you. Well, the creeds also describe the first person of the Trinity as God the Father Almighty. That word almighty isn't referring to the fact that God is almighty, that he can do anything, although he certainly can. But really what that, the creed in that word is getting at is the fact that God has total active control over everything he has made. That is, God didn't wind up the universe like some gigantic clockwork toy and then walk away to let it run on its own. No, he is present and active in his universe. He is present and active in your life right now, whether you recognize it or not. Even though we can't always see God's hand at work, he is upholding the universe, animating it, shaping it like a potter with clay. In fact, the testimony of the Bible is that God will even use those who don't believe him. He'll even use unbelieving people to bring about his purposes in his great providence. He is almighty. Thirdly, the creed describes the first person of the Trinity as father, which means that the creator of all things stoops down to become our intimate father for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, there is certainly a sense that God was the father of his people in general, the Hebrews, um, they certainly describe him as father, but it really is in a general way. I am the father of my people. But then when Jesus came, he taught that God wants to be our personal and intimate father. 
Jesus is the first person in the Bible to refer to God the Father as Abba, Daddy, in an intimate, personal way. Now, let me ask you all a question. My, my children, they'll have friends over. We had some friends over um, just this, this weekend, spent the night. What do you think my children's friends call me? But the friends. Mr. Odell. Mr. Odell. Reverend Odell, Father Andrew, Father Odell, you know, something, or they'll just say you. But, but my children, what do they call me? Daddy. It's a, it's a different relationship. It's a different relationship. When Jesus came to earth, he came to proclaim this good news, that God wants to be your father, dad, daddy, papa. This understanding of God, that he stoops down to be our father in an intimate way, is one of the things that distinguishes the Christian understanding of God from every other religion in terms of how we conceive God, who he is. Just as an example, um, to help you understand the contrast, in the Islamic faith, there are 99 names or titles for God, for Allah, including um, creator, sustainer, provider, ruler, and so on. But not one of them is father. Father. And to press further into this concept, it is important that we understand that God is, though he is father, he is not the father of all men and women indiscriminately. And this is very difficult for us to hear in our current day culture. So I want to try to help you understand. God is the creator of all. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being. And for this reason, every time there's a baptism, we all take a solemn vow as the people of God. So the, the, if, if it's a, a parents who are bringing their child forth for baptism, the parents will make specific vows. But then the whole congregation steps in behind them and we renew our own baptismal vows. And one of the things that we promise as the people of God is that we will respect the dignity of every human being. Now, is that just human beings we like? No. Human beings we're related to? No. Every human being. And do we respect their dignity because they're good? No. Because they're really special? No. No, we respect the dignity of every human being because they are made in the image of God. Not because they are children of God, but because they are made in the image of God. Every human being, from the vilest person in prison to the Mother Teresa's of the world, every human being is made in the image of God. And indeed, God is fatherly toward every human being. But he is not father to every human being. The best analogy I could use would be my relationship, again, going back to uh, my relationship to neighborhood children. Some years ago, when our family was living in the little town of Darlington, South Carolina, one year we had a fantastic snow. And so they, of course, closed down schools. You know, we're not used to dealing with snow down here in the South. And we just had a fantastic snow day. Down the street was a sweet little family um, so I'll just show you. So this is my son, Andrew, back when he was little. He's 16 now. These are two neighborhood children, another precious neighborhood children, my daughter, Lily, my wife, Ellen. That family, their father worked at a local mill. 
And it was one of those mills that runs 24 hours a day. So somebody always has to be at the mill to keep it running. And so he was at the mill, keeping the mill running. And so we were able to take his children out sledding. We had a fantastic day. And I did everything I could to be fatherly toward them in the absence of their father. Um, we went out um, into the snow, and then after everyone was cold, we came into the house, and we had hot chocolate and spent some time together and watched movies and that sort of thing. But then when the sun went down at the end of the day, there was a clear distinction between my children and the neighbor's children. My children stayed in the house. They called me daddy, and the other children went back to their house. So again, I was fatherly toward them, as God is fatherly toward all human beings, but I was not their father. Which raises the question, what is it that makes it possible for us to call God Abba, Daddy, Father? How do we become God's children? And the answer is that God adopts us as his children. We're not natural-born children. Jesus is his only natural-born son, but we are adopted as his sons and daughters when we place our faith, that is, when we surrender our lives over to Christ, God adopts us into his family. That's when he signs the adoption papers. All of us are born into this world as neighborhood children, if you were, will, to whom God is fatherly. But it is only when we put our faith in Jesus Christ that we are adopted and that we become his full, legitimate children with all the privileges that that relationship entails. Here are some passages from God's word that describe how this happens. This comes from the gospel according to John. To all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.15 explains it this way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And those of you who were here the first week, you remember that uh, John Wesley described himself as having the faith of a slave. Well, Paul's saying, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. In Galatians Paul explained it this way, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, daughters of God, through faith. And finally, in this passage, John describes the immense privilege of becoming part of God's family. He says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, God sent his son Jesus into the world so that all who put their trust in him, who surrender their lives to him, can become God's sons and daughters. And so that means that our primary mission as a church and as Christians is to help every, to do everything in our power to help those who are neighborhood children become the father's adopted children. That's what Jesus meant when at the end of his ministry, he said this. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Shorthand, go out there and welcome neighborhood children into the family of God, that they too might become sons, daughters of God Almighty. So the first person of the Trinity is God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Question.